The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This episode of Start Making Sense was recorded on Tuesday before the House voted on impeachment. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. This week, India is on fire with massive protests and massive repression Repression of Muslim students saying no to the government's move toward making India a Hindu nation. The great Indian novelist and activist Arundhati Roy will explain. Also, this week we have the nation's progressive honor roll for 2019. John Nichols will name the elected officials and also the activists, organizations, and ideas that are shaping the future. But first... We need to look at the bad news from Britain, the victory of the Tories under Boris Johnson, and what that might mean for the Republicans under Trump in 2020. For that, we turn to D.D. Guttenplan. Of course, he's editor of The Nation. His most recent book, The Next Republic, is out now in paperback. He's lived in London and followed British politics closely for 20 years. Don, welcome back. Thanks, John. Great to be with you. So how bad was the news from Britain? It was historic. It was catastrophic. I mean, if you look at Margaret Thatcher's majority when she was first elected prime minister, it was actually smaller than the majority that Boris Johnson won last week. Seats that haven't ever elected a Tory to parliament now have Tories representing them in places like Blythe Valley, uh, in Sedgefield, Tony Blair's old seat, which hasn't elected a Tory since 1935. Uh, So, yeah, it was a comprehensive and shattering defeat. And is it fair to say that almost no one saw this coming, at least not this 80-seat majority? I think it's fair to say nobody saw an 80-seat majority coming. I mean, I I have a terrible record as a prophet, but I will say that at our staff meeting two weeks ago, I predicted a 20-seat Tory majority for the reason that probably was a big factor in the 80-seat majority, which is simply that the Boris Johnson got the Brexit election that he wanted. Once the Liberal Democrat leader, Joe Swinson, agreed to have an early election, which essentially stabbed Labour in the back, because Johnson had been flipping about on the hook and unable to get a bill through Parliament, unable to do anything, and he kept trying to goad Jeremy Corbyn into calling an election, and Corbyn sensibly said, let's sort Brexit out first, and then we can have an election on the, you know, the issues that actually divide the parties. Uh, once she made that impossible by consenting to an early election, it was always going to be a Brexit election. 
and the Tory slogan, get Brexit done, although perhaps not quite as seductive as Tory Svengali Dominic Cummings's previous slogan, which is take back control, was it promised closure and clarity. And what Labour was offering in contrast was a fudge where they said, we're going to negotiate yet another Brexit deal, and then we're going to have a referendum on that deal. And in that referendum, Jeremy Corbyn is going to promise to remain neutral. So if your idea of a good time is six months to a year of more Brexit misery, you had every reason to vote Labour. Whereas if you really wanted Brexit, or if, like a lot of people, you just wanted this nightmare to be over, you were basically forced to vote Tory. Well, our centrist friends say the meaning of the British results for American politics is that the socialist program didn't work as an alternative to the racism and xenophobia that were so important to the Boris Johnson victory. In other words, bad news for Bernie and bad news for us at the nation. And of course, Boris Johnson does look a lot like Donald Trump in many ways. I wonder if you agree. I don't agree with any of that. I mean, first of all, our centrist friends are always saying, oh, the left program won't work or didn't work or can't work or is unelectable. That's what they say because they don't have any actual other ideas. But also, it's worth noting that Boris Johnson is not Donald Trump. Yes, he's a serial liar, uh, a serial philanderer, and someone you know, who, who makes things up as he goes along. But he also served two terms as mayor of London, which is the most racially and ethnically diverse city in the world. And he, he won re-election in London by appealing to a very broad coalition. So I think, you know, it's, it's wrong to bracket him with Trump, except that they're equally unprincipled and untrustworthy. He's not nearly as right-wing as Trump, although he's prepared to sound more right-wing if it helps him in internal Tory party disputes. And I suspect that he's not going to govern from the far right or the alt-right. I suspect he's going to keep his campaign promise to not dismantle the NHS, which was the one scare message that was effective for labor until Johnson made a series of promises that basically the NHS would be safe, the National Health Service. So I think, you know, that part isn't true. But I think there is something, there is a warning in this for the left and for the nation and possibly for Bernie Sanders, uh, which is twofold. One is that you can promise people the moon and it doesn't matter if they don't believe you're going to keep your promises. So the doorstep poll data from after the election that I've seen suggests that the problem was that people... It's not that people didn't like the idea of what the, what the Labour Party called a green industrial revolution, which is essentially Brit-speak for a Green New Deal. They liked the idea fine. They just didn't believe that Corbyn was going to be able to deliver it because they didn't think he had a carefully thought-out plan to get there. They didn't believe where the money was going to come from. And just piling promises on promises only made Labour look less credible. So I think, you know, one message is that you have to have a focused program that people believe you can deliver, whether it's Medicare for all, whether it's student loan forgiveness, whether it's a Green New Deal. 
Maybe all, the, all three of those things are, de are deliverable, but I think it's important to figure out what order you're going to deliver them in, how you're going to pay for them, and to convince people that you can really do it. I think that's one really important lesson from this election. Well, the real problem here is the loss of the white working class to the right in the United States and the UK, and, and in other places too, of course, France and Germany, the white working class leaving the Democrats for Trump in 2016, giving him a victory based in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, is a kind of striking parallel to the north of England voting Tory this month, don't you think? Only if you don't look closely. I mean, first of all, as I'm sure you know, John, the American working class is not a white working class. The American working class is a brown, black, and white working class. And to talk about the white working class as if it's a distinct segment where the only way to appeal to them is to compete with the Republicans in xenophobia and racism is insane. But in England, on the other hand, <laughs> the working class is a lot whiter. But it's not about these are this was not about uh, racial issues. I don't think race was a salient factor in this election. I think what is a salient factor is what I would call the deworkerization of politics. You know, the idea that you can come up with a program that's based on appeal to a metropolitan elite and is full filled with all the signifiers of wokeness and enlightenment but actually offers no change in the lives of working people, whether they're white working people or black working people or brown working people. And I think that's the problem. The problem is that Corbyn is, and his, advi his advisors were a tight circle of metropolitan Londoners who were never comfortable talking to workers in the North, didn't spend much time among workers, and didn't know how to listen to them. And I think all of those things could be very dangerous if they're repeated by any Democratic nominee. What our centrist friends conclude from the British election... Your centrist friends. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not confessing to having centrist okay. friends. <laughs> what my centrist friends conclude from uh, the British election and its implications for America is that not that we need a xenophobic and anti-immigrant program, but we need a more centrist program because the socialist message didn't work in Britain as an alternative to the xenophobia and racism of the right. So what we really need is something like Joe Biden or Mayor Pete or, God forbid, Michael Bloomberg. I think, that, again, that's only, that's only even plausible if you don't pay any attention. If you look at any of the polling data... It shows that what people, what was really unpopular was not the labor message, but the labor messenger. That large numbers of former labor voters simply couldn't stand Jeremy Corbyn. Now, a lot of that is probably a successful media defamation campaign, which might well apply to a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren if they're the nominee here. But I think also it's true that, to put it technically, Bernie Sanders is a mensch in a way that Jeremy Corbyn just <laughs> isn't and never was. Okay. And uh, it's going to be much harder to demonize him. And I, I think the same is true of Elizabeth Warren. I think that what you had was a very unpopular messenger. But I do think that the message needs to be a message of real and tangible change for working people and their lives, not just a change in attitude or slogans. Of course, there are, these, there are these scary historical parallels. Margaret Thatcher became prime minister in 1979, a year before Reagan was elected president. Brexit 
won the referendum of June 2016, five months before Trump won the American election. Could it be that history is going to repeat itself again in 2020? Well, you know, history often rhymes, but I think I think it's important to pay attention to Brexit. When Brexit passed, uh, a friend of mine who's very high up in the Labour Party said to me, you know, that this means Trump is going to win. And at the time, I, I didn't believe it, but it it made sense. You know, there was a kind of nationalist zeitgeist that was rising. And I think Brexit definitely is what won the Tories this election. But Brexit is now not a factor in Britain, and we don't have Brexit here. I think what it does show is that if you don't come up with a left populist message to counter a right populist message, Donald Trump could easily get reelected. I think people who think that any Democrat could beat Donald Trump are kidding themselves. I think it's going to be hard to beat Donald Trump, and you're going to have to give people reasons to vote for the alternative, not just reasons to vote against Trump. I think that definitely is the message of this election, and it's an important one, and it's an important one not to miss. One last question. Does this really mean the end of Britain's membership in the European Union, and what will Britain be like outside of the Union? Well, it certainly means the end of Britain's membership in the European Union. That's, that's the promise that Boris is going to be able to deliver on almost right away. Uh, but what that's going to be like, I think it's going to be complicated. And, you know, part of those complications are negotiations that will drag on for months and years. But it's also true that the European Union is Britain's biggest trading partner, and they want to still sell to Britain, and Britain wants to still sell to them, and they will come to some kind of deal. I suspect that Boris would very much like a trade deal with the U.S. That would be a feather in his cap. But I also don't think he's going to be able to wholly privatize the NHS to get it. So I think Britain is going to be a poorer, less interesting, less cosmopolitan country for a while. And that's sad. But I don't think it's going to be economically catastrophic in the short term. And I think in the medium term, the United Kingdom may well splinter apart. We haven't talked about what's going to happen in Scotland or Ireland, both of which are more likely to leave the United Kingdom, Northern Ireland, because of this, because of this result. So I think there's going to be lots of changes, but I, I think part of what happened was Labour used overblown scare tactics about the impact of Brexit, which only alienated Labour Brexit voters. That also was a misstep, which cost them northern seats. One more thing I have to ask. What do you think is the path forward for Labour after Brexit? I think Labour needs to both stick to its socialist principles and find a way to re integrate and recenter workers and work in the party's identity, institutions, and manifesto. And I think that's going to be a long process. You know, this is something that should have happened after labor lost in 2015. And what happened instead was that instead of having that debate inside the party and instead of figuring out what it means to be a labor party in the 21st century, they selected Jeremy Corbyn as leader and that kind of substituted for the debate. That debate needs to happen. It's the debate that's happening now in the Democrats, not so much between Biden and Bernie, but between Buttigieg and Warren and Bernie and Amy Klobuchar. It's the debate that, in a way, Biden is sucking the air out of, so it's harder to hear, but I think it is happening, and I think it's really important. D.D. Guttenplan wrote about the historic defeat for British labor at thenation.com. Don, 
Thanks for giving us the bad news. <laughs> well, somebody's got to do it, John. Always good to be with you. Now it's time for one of our favorite end-of-year features, the nation's progressive honor roll for 2019. And for that, we turn, of course, to John Nichols. He's national affairs correspondent for the magazine, and he hosted the Next Left podcast. John, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be with you, John. Well, 2019, of course, has been a year of big, big news, impeachment and the Democratic primaries. Lots of possibilities there for people to honor. But we've taken a different approach with the progressive honor roll. Please explain. Well, it, you're right about uh, impeachment in the presidential race. There are definitely people uh, who have distinguished themselves, and you could do a whole honor roll out of impeachment, to be quite honest, uh, topped by people like Jamie Raskin and Pramila Jayapal and, and Mark Pocan, who very early on came out for impeachment, and a host of others. Um, you know, we could even uh, give uh, the, the greatest honor to Maxine Waters, who kept the word alive uh, through all the period when, when nobody else wanted to discuss it. But um, one of the things we've always tried to do with the honor roll of the nation is to highlight people who often are operating outside the spotlight or who are you know, kind of doing the diligent day-in, day-out work on progressive causes, even when everybody's attention tends to be over on you know, a, a battle of the moment like impeachment. We've named one outstanding member of the Senate. Who is it and why? It's Ed Markey, the uh, senator from Massachusetts. And obviously, uh, in Massachusetts, there's a senator who's very, very well known, and it's Elizabeth Warren. And she's been high on our honor roll before, as frankly has Bernie Sanders, a, a candidate from a neighboring state. But the reason we selected Ed Markey this year is that in the Senate, he has really been the member who has reached out to and worked with a lot of the new members in the House to put uh, issues front and center, issues like uh, banning first strike nuclear attacks, where he's worked with Ted Lieu, uh, restoring net neutrality, where he's worked with a number of, of really good House members, and most notably, the Green New Deal. It's Ed Markey, who is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's co-sponsor on the Green New Deal legislation. And the nation is honoring one member of the House of Representatives. Again, who is it and why? Well, intriguingly enough, it's another person from Massachusetts. And um, it's Ayanna Presley, who is a member of the squad, uh, very well known. Specifically, we're, we were interested in her response to Attorney General Barr's efforts to kind of renew the use of the death penalty at the federal level. And Ayanna Presley's response to that was a, a really great uh, piece of legislation that seeks to abolish capital punishment. She's also been a great battler on reproductive rights, working with Barbara Lee and others. And she has this terrific proposal, the idea of lowering the voting age to 16. The young people who are leading on issues like climate change and racial justice and economic justice uh, ought to be able to go to the polls and cast a ballot. Of course, climate change is in many ways the issue of issues. And instead of selecting an individual, 
for making the most important progressive contribution this year. The nation has named a group. Tell us about that. We looked at the Sunrise Movement, and in fact, they would they would correct me and say, you know, let's not talk climate change, let's talk climate crisis. And they pressured Democrats in particular to step up on the issue, not just Democrats, but they haven't been afraid to do so. And one of the things that excites us is they've also pressured the process. One of their big campaigns this year has been to get the Democratic National Committee to hold a single-issue debate on climate issues. Uh, They haven't succeeded with the DNC, but they did get several cable networks to organize forums. And frankly, they haven't given up on on pushing for a climate debate, which we think is really important. The Democrats have lost a massive amount of ground over the last decade in state legislatures. And one of our biggest tasks in 2020 is to gain back some or most of the ground that has been lost. Uh, You've highlighted this issue by picking the activist state legislator of the year to year who dramatizes just how important what goes on in the states can be. Yeah, we, re- we focused in this year on Anna Eskamani, who represents the Orlando area in the Florida state legislature. And in a case like this, folks might have thought, well, wouldn't you pick somebody in a blue state who, you know, is passing lots of legislation and, and you know, literally you know, developing out that laboratory of democracy concept. And believe me, there are plenty of folks in blue states, plenty of legislators who are just doing fantastic jobs. But we thought that what Anna Eskamani is doing down in Florida is particularly fascinating. She serves in a state with a Republican governor and where Republicans are in control of the legislature. So it's very hard. It's challenging. And we were so impressed. We have been so impressed by how she has handled her position. She has used it as a platform to introduce lots of legislation, not all of which passes, but that puts issues on the agenda. She has pressured the governor to show greater respect for members of the LGBTQ community. And that's significant because she represents the area where the Pulse nightclub is located, the scene of one of the most horrific mass shootings in American history. She's been an incredible champion on reproductive rights. And she is uh, the daughter of Iranian immigrants and has uh, used her own immigrant experience to step up and speak up uh, for immigrant rights in Florida in some very effective ways. Criminal justice reform is another issue of 2019 that has finally started to bear fruit, especially in American cities where progressive prosecutors are winning elections and transforming the justice system. Who have you got there? Well, we looked at a group of newly elected or relatively newly elected prosecutors uh, like Rachel Rollins, who represents or serves as Suffolk County District Attorney. That's the Boston area. Kim Fox in the uh, Chicago area and Larry Krasner, who is in Philadelphia. And these three are not the only progressive prosecutors who've come up in, in recent years, but there are three in very major cities. In the case of uh, Kim Fox, a, a tremendous amount of transparency in a city where a lot of things weren't transparent. Uh, Rachel Rollins working on, uh, frankly, a whole new approach to prosecutions that that really does look to uh, de-emphasizing prosecutions on a host of uh, nonviolent crimes. Larry Krasner, who is making lots of changes in Philadelphia, but is also 
just a, a great thinker on these issues in a whole bunch of ways and pulls a lot of the strings together is developing out kind of a vision uh, that certainly works in Philadelphia that can go national. The three of these individuals together form uh, something of a team. It's particularly notable that they stepped up to endorse uh, Chesa Boudin, who was running for district attorney in the San Francisco area. And I think they played a real role in helping him to win. Let me add, we record our show in Los Angeles. The next big election where a progressive prosecutor is on the ballot is Los Angeles County, the biggest prosecutor's office in the country, the biggest jail system of all. Uh, the candidate is George Gascon. He He's the first progressive prosecutor with a chance in L.A., and the primary is March 3rd, and I'm sure we'll be talking about that again. I bet you will. Uh, the other big development of the past year uh, has been a strike wave, big strikes in 2019. Who did you decide to honor on this front? Well, we looked at the Chicago Teachers Union, and their strike was highly effective. They won some real breakthrough protections, not just for the teachers, but but importantly for students uh, with school nurses and other guarantees, um, with protections for immigrant and refugee children with all sorts of community services. So they're very, very innovative in how they look at the role of a labor union in protecting its members, but also in waging the big fights for economic and social and racial justice. Yeah, let me put in a word for the L.A. Teachers Union, United Teachers L Los Angeles, UTLA. They ran a magnificent strike with massive community support among the, over the same issues as you've cited for Chicago and won a historic victory here in June. When we pick our favorites, by the way, it's hard because there are so many folks doing good work. The nation's progressive honor roll for 2019 is featured in the new issue of the magazine. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, John Nichols. Pleasure to be with you. India is on fire with protest this week. The states of West Bengal and Assam are burning, and the police are brutalizing Muslim students. Massive unrest is everywhere in the world's second most populous country. For a report on the protests and on the far right that rules India today, we turn to Arundhati Roy. Of course, she's the celebrated author of the novel The God of Small Things, for which she received the Man Booker Prize, and of the Ministry of Utmost Happiness. She's also published more than a dozen books of nonfiction, a collection of her essays from the past 20 years with the wonderful title My Seditious Heart was recently published by Haymarket Books. She's a contributor to The Guardian, The Intercept, and The Nation. We reached her today in Kerala, where she lives. It's an honor and a pleasure to say, Arundhati Roy, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you, John. Well, We've read the page one news in the New York Times. We're recording this on Tuesday night in India. Tell us about these protests. They are about something called the Citizenship Amendment Bill. What is that? Well, the Citizenship Amendment Bill is a bill that is now an act that was passed in Parliament a couple of days ago. And essentially, it it sort of pretends to be an act about migrants, uh, and it discriminates uh, about which migrants will get citizenship in India on the basis of religion. 
Therefore, it essentially says, says Hindus, Christians, Sikhs, and so on, and deliberately leaves out Muslims from Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Bangladesh will eventually be able to uh, apply and get Indian citizenship. But the fear is not, you know, when you look at the Citizenship Amendment Bill and you couple it with what is called the NRC, the National Register of Citizens, what happens is that the government is proposing to do a huge exercise which which it has just completed in a complete disaster in the state of Assam, where it is basically putting the onus of proving citizenship on Indian citizens. So combined with the uh, NRC and the Citizenship Amendment Act, what people fear is it's like cutting the ground from under your feet, right? And especially discriminatory to Muslims who will be required to somehow prove their citizenship by producing documents which they don't have. And it will cast all of India into a sort of documentation nightmare. And you can imagine this country of poor people, illiterate people, undocumented people, and I'm not talking just of migrants. It's just a complete nightmare. And tell us about these protests. It's a little hard for us to understand the, the scale of these. Well, you know, they began with, with universities, and the students came out protesting completely peacefully, but there were some buses that were burned, and they were not burned by the students. There are allegations that they were burned either by, you know, other people or by the police or by agent provocateurs, but one doesn't know by whom. But on the basis of that, the police stormed the university without the permission of the vice chancellor, smashed up the libraries, smashed up students, bloodied them. In Aligarh Muslim University, uh, we don't even know very much because the internet has been switched off, but the news that I got, I mean, from calling students that I know personally, they said, actually bullets were fired, students are missing, nobody knows where they are. So it's, it's a form of terror. And in response to that, uh, Delhi University, students in universities across the country, and people, just ordinary people across the country, have just come out in their tens of thousands saying we've just had enough of this bigotry and this hatred that's being spread by this government in all these sly ways. And of course, West Bengal is burning, and the northeastern states, where the protests have a different flavor, because those protests are actually against immigrants, Hindu or Muslim. So the the protests in the mainland have a different uh, politics, and the protests in the northeastern states are different. But regardless, there's just unrest on a scale which is huge. The situation is frightening. So far, it's the police that are that are uh, on the front lines, you know. But the real worry that I have is what are called the Hindu militia mobs are released on these students. These are mobs who have run amok, who have committed mass murder in places like Gujarat. So one doesn't know how it's all going to end. 
Now I want to switch the focus to Houston, Texas, to the NFL football stadium on September 22nd, where there was a huge event called Howdy Modi. Howdy Modi. Tell us about the Howdy Modi event. What was that? Well, that was a spectacle uh, that the Indian Prime Minister they love spectacle, like your president loves spectacle, you know. So he was visiting the U.S. and uh, this was just, I don't know how many days after the shutdown, stripping the state of Jammu and Kashmir of its special status and putting that seven million people under lockdown, shutting off the internet. And then um, Modi came to the U.S. and Donald Trump, I think perhaps the first time an American president has been a guest in his own country hmm. at, at a meeting uh, where Indians gathered to, to cheer uh, Modi. So this was 60,000 Indian Americans went to the football stadium in Houston, cheered Prime Minister Modi, the Hindu nationalist, and Trump came to Houston to greet him. In India, we watched that on TV. Your recent lecture in New York, which has just been published in The Nation magazine, India, Portents of an Ending, Modi, the RSS, and the Rise of the Hindu Right, you draw historical comparisons between Prime Minister Modi and not Donald Trump, but National Socialism in Germany in the 30s. What connections do you see there? Well, it's not the Prime Minister Modi so much as, as the organization to which he belongs, and therefore, yes, he is included in that comparison. He belongs to an organization called the RSS, which stands for the Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh, which was set up in 1925. It's a Hindu nationalist organization that has always believed that India should be primarily a Hindu nation. And they have always uh, been great admirers of Hitler. They have likened Muslims of India to the Jews of Germany. And in the last quote in that essay I, I, is from Goldwalker, who actually says, you know, that, uh, uh, that India should be a Hindu nation and all others should live as second-class citizens with no rights. And, you know, when you look at the decisions that Modi, uh, that the Modi government has made uh, in in quick succession, you see this uh, this this hurry to realize the RSS vision, and that includes this uh, NRC and CAB, which is a way of creating a kind of tiered society. Of course, India has always been a tiered society because of the caste system, but here to formally, I mean. These people themselves are talking about millions of quote-unquote illegal migrants. The home, uh, the home minister likes to talk of them as termites. And in fact, the rhetoric of the RSS and many people who subscribe to the ideology of what we call Hindutva has been to portray Muslims as outsiders, as foreigners, as invaders. So, you know, these two things dovetail together. Now the, now this law that is trying to discriminate between people on a religious basis 
So you're, you're looking at a tiered society where you have a new caste system, where which exists alongside the old caste system, where you know some people have more rights than others. You say in the nation that none of the white supremacist neo-Nazi groups on the rise in the world today can boast the infrastructure and manpower commanded by the RSS, that's the Hindu nationalist mothership of the ruling BJP party of Prime Minister uh, Modi. Tell us about this infrastructure and manpower. Well, the RSS itself boasts that it has 57,000 branches across India. It has something like 600,000 volunteers, and it's a kind of volunteer militia because, you know, they are set up along the lines of uh, Mussolini black shirts. They have schools in which millions of students are enrolled. They have their own media outlets, their own women's organizations. And in fact, now, more or less, every institution of Indian democracy. So it's almost like they are not a shadow state anymore. It is the state now. And it has an organization that has been working for a hundred years towards this vision. And of course, they have the claim to, to scriptures to bolster their idea of their own superiority. So in conclusion here, is India going to become officially or semi-officially a Hindu nation? I, I learned from your, your essay in The Nation that the Constitution of India calls the country, quote, a socialist, secular, democratic republic, close quote. That's what the Constitution says. Nobody will say that that is indeed how India has been all these years, but at least the pretense of that, the hypocrisy of that, gives you a certain sense of decency, you know. But now, all of, all of that has been forgotten in this kind of nakedly, aggressively anti-Muslim, anti-minority policy after policy that's coming. So, I personally am taken by surprise that so many people have risen up in rage against the Citizenship Amendment Bill. It's not just the bill, but it's the realization of what has been done to this place and that people, are, ordinary people are finally realizing, you know. Although we have a media that is just drip-feeding hatred in, straight into the range of people. So despite all that, to see all these young people stand up for each other in this way and to say, sorry, but this is not who we are and this is not what we want to be. I don't know. Uh, I mean, it's just the beginning of a movement. I don't know what's going to happen to people. I don't know how much beating all of us are going to have to take. I don't know what's going to happen. But it's better that it's happening than it's not happening. Arundhati Roy her essay, India, Intimations of an Ending, was first presented by Arundhati herself. She came to New York City last month. It was the Jonathan Shell Memorial Lecture created by the Type Media Center, formerly the Nation Institute, and the Gould Family Foundation. And it was presented at Cooper Union. It appears in the new issue of The Nation. You can read it at thenation.com. Arundhati Roy, thank you for everything you do, and thanks for talking with us today. 
Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.